Welcome to Holistic Sex Ed Radio, where we are changing the way parents talk to their kids about sex, relationships, and how to stay safe in our rapidly changing world. You are your kid's best source of information and primary example. In these thought-provoking conversations, Robin and her guests seek to improve your relationship skills, expand your knowledge, and give you the tools to help your kids make the most out of their lives. Now, here's your host, Robin LaCrosse. Hello and welcome to Holistic Sex Ed Radio. I'm your host, Robin LaCrosse, and today I have a very special guest here lined up for you. Her name is Peggy Orenstein, and we are going to be talking about boys and sex. This is going to be a really awesome conversation. So Peggy is the New York Times best-selling author of Girls and Sex, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, Waiting for Daisy, Flux, and Schoolgirls a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and the Far Magazine. She has published in the Washington Post, Slate, New York, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker, among other publications. She has also contributed commentary to NPR's All Things Considered. She lives in Northern California with her husband and daughter. Hi, Peggy. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. So you have done a tons of research on both girls and now boys and sex. And I read your book, Girls and Sex, and I was fascinated and so excited to get my hands on boys and sex because this is a really important conversation. And we've been talking for so long about empowering girls and all this kind of stuff. You know, I would love to know, like, what inspired you to learn about girls and sex and then branch out into boys and sex, too? Well, I honestly never thought I was going to write about boys, so that, that has been a really new experience because I've been writing about girls and issues affecting girls for, you know, about 25 years now. Um, but after I wrote Girls and Sex, it became really clear that, you know, nobody was talking to boys and nobody was listening to boys and nobody was hearing about what was going on for them in this new era. And as I was thinking about that, Me Too hit. And suddenly there was an imperative to reduce sexual violence, but it also seemed like this opportunity to me to really, you know, engage boys in conversations that are long overdue about sex, intimacy, and gender. So I went out and I talked to um, over 100 guys of different backgrounds. They were either college-bound or in college, so high school and college. Uh, And we had, you know real conversations about real issues um and it was it was really it was it was fascinating and it was really important because i think we you know we don't talk to boys um and we are in this era where we have me too where we have media where we have technology where we have porn where we have hookup culture and it's crucial that we hear what they are thinking about all of that so we can better guide them yeah it's so true and i know um part of my work revolves around talking to parents, you know, helping parents talk to their kids about sex. And I run into so many parents that are like, Oh, thank God I have boys. Like as if that's easier, you know, like I don't have to like go through this whole sex talk or whatever the case may be, you know, but they were just so relieved to have boys because they didn't have to worry about all this stuff. And the truth is it's like, we're so neglecting boys' education. Yeah. Well, and I think that the, the thing that Michi provided was, an, was, was a recognition of that by parents. When the, you know, just the, the level of misconduct across all sectors of society um, really 
hit home, particularly with mothers. And those moms who, yeah, they used to say to me all the time, Woo, I'm so glad I have boys. I don't have to worry about this. Um, you know, they were really the ones clamoring for this book because they were saying, wow, now we realize our job is harder. You have to raise good men. And raising good men, that's definitely a challenge and subject for a lot of conversation lately. Mm-hmm. So based on your conversations with boys, I mean, you know, when you get to the teenage years, parents find that their kids stop communicating. But when I was reading through your book, it really sounded like boys wished or kids in general, because I did read your book on girls too, that parents would step up and have more of these conversations. Can you tell us about yeah, what you found in your book? have been found to be influential when they do happen, but they are rare. And I will say, I get it. I mean, I was, one of my biggest fears going in to talk to boys was that they wouldn't talk. You know, they, the girls have a reputation for talking and teenage boys have a reputation for being monosyllabic, you know? So I thought, oh my gosh, what's going to happen when I go in and talk to these guys? But one of the biggest surprises for me was how eager they were to have these really deep and serious conversations and how insightful they were in narrating their own experience. And I think, and a lot of them would say to me, you know, that just the conversation was therapeutic or just the conversation changed their minds or opened their eyes to things. Um, And just the act of being able to have space to think about and talk about these issues, which they never get. So I felt like, you know, just by giving boys permission and space to wrestle with sex and masculinity, um, it was kind of transformative for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, based on what you gathered from your conversations with these boys, like, what can parents, what do do, you know, what maybe should parents do to help start these conversations and give boys an opportunity to start voicing some of these things? Well, the whole last chapter of the book has sort of a series of ideas of the kinds of conversations that we need to have with boys because it's not just about sex, right? It's not even just about consent. It's about masculinity. It's about media. It's about all these different things. And what I wanted to do with this book was to um, give parents a tool so they could see how boys were thinking about things like, you know, what it means to be a man, about expressing emotion, about sexual conquest, about pornography, the messages they were getting from the media, um, so that they could better talk to boys, but also something that boys themselves could use to hear how other boys were thinking about these issues. And you know, maybe create a better dialogue for them with their peers and with themselves so they can be the men they want to be. I was reading, like, some research, as the, I think actually it was in your book. They were saying that, you know, boys, they go into preschool, you know, and about halfway through, they notice a shift in the behavior. Um, was I reading that in your book? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. Well, basically what I was just getting at is like you raise, you know, you start out, you know, these formative years, you know, one to five, one to six, whatever, you know, and then you send your children off to preschool and then, then they're exposed to the larger world. And so then all of this stuff comes in and you were talking about what they were calling dick school and like all these things, like all these, all these behaviors that, you know, all of a sudden boys are or situations, not necessarily even behaviors, but situations that boys find themselves in where they have to choose, like, do I speak up about how this guy on the team is treating his girlfriend or and lose social standing, or do I 
do I keep my mouth shut and like stay with the status quo? And, you know, like how do boys wrestle with this, with these types of situations? That's some of the most um, poignant things to, that I would hear boys talk about. So there was a boy who, for instance, was talking to me about um, how he had tried to speak up. He was on a crew team um, and he was trying to speak up um, uh, uh, to an older boy who was, you know, bragging about, I don't know, hooking up with a girl who wasn't his girlfriend and, blah, you know, whatever, saying something disgusting. And he and another boy spoke up and the other boys laughed at them. And so the next time that guy said something, um, this boy's friend spoke up again, but the boy himself stayed silent. Mm-hmm. And he said, I watched as this other boy kept stepping up and, and speaking out that other guys stopped liking him as much and he lost all his social capital. And I was sitting here with buckets of mine and not spending it. And he looked at me and said, you know, I don't know what to do because I don't want to have to choose between my dignity and being part of this team and be, being one of these guys. But how do I make it so I don't have to choose? And right. he had to agonized look you know it was really profound and I think guys wrestle with that all the time and that that silence that they fall into because you know they don't want to say anything but they also don't want to be part of it but that silence is really how boys learn to become men it starts with boys that really starts from the get-go boys um from the time they're born they're in a, a impoverished emotional environment compared to girls even when they're babies mothers um, talk with more emotional language to their daughters than they do to their sons. Um, you know, and, and as you said, by the time they're in preschool or uh, halfway through kindergarten, they know that they're supposed to act a certain way to be boys, and they start suppressing emotion. And what boys would say to me was that by the time they were in high school, they would talk about um, the wall. So many of them use that phrase, the wall that they put up that they would put feelings behind so that they would, you know, not anger and happiness were okay, but everything else had to go behind that wall. And one of the boys said to me, you know, I trained myself not to feel, or they would say, I trained myself not to cry. So one guy said that he um, wanted to cry after his parents got divorced, but he couldn't. So he streamed three movies about the Holocaust back to back, you know, and that worked. And what it was really so much of what it was about was boys wrestling with the idea of vulnerability and how vulnerability was, they weren't supposed to express vulnerability, but as you just said, we know, you know, Brene Brown says, vulnerability is the secret sauce that holds relationships together. So you are, when you cut them off from vulnerability, you cut them off from being able to have really fulfilling, mutually gratifying relationships, and you get into that dynamic where you dump a lot of emotional labor onto women. Mm. You know, and as I was reading your book, I had... I don't know if it was a, maybe I'll call it a flash of insight about maybe why girls, uh, young women tend to go for older men. And when we come back from this commercial break, I want to ask you about that. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back. Stay tuned. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Are you looking for a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? 
Do you want your business to thrive? Do you want to enjoy better relationships and find your purpose? Tune in every week to Stepping Into the Tenda Dao Chung Life Transformation with Dr. and Master Shaw with host Diana Gold Holland, who will share the wisdom of Master Shaw. You'll hear from inspiring teachers and listen to testimonials about life transformation. Stepping Into the Tenda Dao Chung can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. in the West and 6 p.m. in the East on Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Holistic Sex Ed Radio. Want to go deeper into this conversation? Visit us on the web at HolisticSexEdRadio.com. Now back to Robin LaCrosse. We're back. So, Peggy, I would, you know, I've found that a lot of, like, say, teenage girls, early 20-year-old girls, myself included, when I was in my early 20s, I started dating older men because they were more mature. And I was wondering, like, as I was reading your book, I was like, oh, you know, it probably takes boys a lot longer to figure out this, you know, intimacy, relationship, you know, part of life, you know, relationships, because one, nobody taught them about that when they were growing up. And so they have to go through this whole like phase where they're, you know, trying to impress each other and get as many girls as they can. And they're not, you know, like, even if they have relationships, they maybe aren't treating their girlfriends right or whatever. And so I was wondering, so I had that realization. I was like, hmm, I wonder if that's why, you know, young women tend to go for older men. What do you think? Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I don't know. But it's sure true that um, boys talk about, you know, that it was interesting because in the public realm, they definitely, you know, would talk about girls as equals in the classroom, equals in the playing field, equals in leadership. They had female friends. But yeah, in that intimate realm, you know, the first thing, especially because nobody's talking to them, they're learning. And I think more powerfully than ever, possibly, that sexual conquest is a measure of a man and that you need to um, hook up, you know, have, as they say, sex without feelings with as many partners as possible and treat those partners rather poorly in the process. And that's how you get status. And, you know, that's what's presented to them as fun. So when you start listening to the language that they're you know, encouraged to use that so-called locker room talk that we all know have been talking about in the news. You know, they they hammer, they bang, they nail, they pipe, they hit that, they tap that smash. ass. Yeah, yeah, smash was what I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they to a construction site, right? Not the right. see, but I will say that a lot of the guys that I spoke with weren't real happy about that. Mm-hmm. And they felt, you know, really kind of caught in that conundrum. So it wasn't necessarily like that was great for them. Um, and they were really eager and, and, and yearning for kind of, you know, a, a, a different kind of path that validated more of who they were, too. Mm-hmm. Been, you know, I felt like with hookup culture, boys didn't necessarily feel as betrayed or angry as girls could sometimes feel in that culture. Um, but it also wasn't serving them very well. 
So basically, we have this whole culture that's going on, this hookup culture, which is largely in, in the colleges, but also in the high schools, too. And we already know that girls don't necessarily find this very satisfying or gratifying. And now, based on your conversations, you've discovered that neither do boys. And yeah. So how, how does this persist? How does it keep going? I don't know. I had, I, so in one of the chapters, I go to um, a, a pregame in a freshman dorm, a pregame party, because, you know, that's you want somebody who looks like your mom at that party um yeah of course of course yes yeah, nothing to make you feel comfortable and like you could you know, like awkward at all yeah uh-huh. you could really be yourself uh-huh. the next day i go back and i'm talking to them about how the evening went and how the parties they went to went and the, the conversation pretty quickly you know spirals downward into what's wrong with hookup culture and the girls saying you know well you know you don't feel like obligated is too strong of a word but um you know, you feel like you don't want to make guys feel bad, so you go through with something that maybe you're not that interested in, and the guys are like, oh my gosh, I had no idea girls did that. But meanwhile, the boys were sort of talking about, you know, as one guy said to me, um, it can be like two distinct experiences that people are having, and there's very little eye contact, and it's like you're acting vulnerable with somebody, but you're not being vulnerable with somebody that you don't know very well or care very much about. And he said, you know, it's not exactly like it's a problem for me, but it's weird and it's not fun. And, and so it was always ended up that way. So with this group of kids, I said, so why do you keep doing this? You know, if I've never had a conversation with hookup culture that's ended with the person going, and I love it, you know? Um, And they just kind of went, well, I mean, it's sex. And that's better than not, I guess. I mean, they really, I think they do it because it's a script handed to them and they do it because they don't question it. And, and I'm not in saying that, you know, saying they should never have um, a, a, a casual situation, but if they are going to do that to treat their partner with more care and dignity and reciprocity and mutuality than is currently expected in the hookup culture, which is a really hostile culture. Mm-hmm. So hostile. Uh, just say more about that. Well, um, it's adversarial. It's supposed to be. You know, you you hook up with somebody. Part of the reason that you um, get drunk, which you know you've got to do. Right? Part of yeah. It's part it's of it. Um, is to part of it is so that it, you know you don't feel so awkward about the whole thing, and part of it is to establish that it's meaningless. That's part of what establishes meaningless. If you hooked up with somebody sober that means something. Wow. So drunkenness establishes meaninglessness. I see. Um, and then for guys, um, you know, the, what, what guys who are really into that scene would tell me is it feels like a competition. It feels like an accomplishment. It feels like something that you're doing to prove, you know, to, to impress your guys. It's not something you're doing to really be sharing this experience with this girl. So um, they're not that concerned with the girl's pleasure, for instance. Yeah, right. And, that is not really a factor. They're concerned. It was interesting because they were concerned with her satisfaction, but they didn't define it the way that I think most women would. Um, they defined it as um, stamina, like mm-hmm. intercourse for a long enough time, and to a right. lesser penis size. Mm-hmm. So, if, so one guy said, you know, I, I would look at the clock before I'd start intercourse mm-hmm. so that I'd make sure that I lasted long enough, not because – not even for her, but so that when she, it was like an invisible audience in the room, you know, right. so he went back to her friends and told them, I wouldn't feel ashamed. And he right. said, it turned sex into a task, one that I 
kind of enjoyed to a certain extent, but, you know, a task. And then the next day in hookup culture, you're supposed to be less friendly than whatever you were before. Right. then, you know, boys would say, well, so, you know, I saw somebody coming down the street that I had hooked up with the night before, and I averted my eyes. Girls would complain about that all the time. And so it was a really interesting opportunity to say to boys, well, so why did you avert your eyes? What is it? And they said, well, you don't want to, again, you don't want to risk vulnerability. You don't want to risk looking at a person and saying hi and trying to establish some connection if it turns out that for them, they were just doing a one night thing and it was meaningless because that would make you embarrassed and horrified. And I would say, so you would rather not take that risk and lose the opportunity to have something more with that person. And, you know, they would go, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, the hookups now, what hookup culture means is that, um, Sex precedes intimacy, right? That, that it's not the product of intimacy. And also that for kids that hookups are the pathway to a relationship um, as opposed to getting to know somebody often. Uh, but most hookups aren't going to result in a relationship. And it's hard for a hookup to result in a relationship. Some do, but it's not easy. Yeah, well, it sounds like the cards are kind of stacked against you, even if you happen to like that person. Well, let's say, for example, you did like that person and you had a crush on them and you had the opportunity to hook up with them. That kind of dashes your hopes for a a relationship in most cases, it sounds like, because now they won't even look at you. Or or one of the guys talked to me as an adult, this, you know, was sort of boggling to me about the morning after text, like the importance of like, that you have to, okay, first of all, you have to figure out the timing. When do you do it? How long do you wait in between texts? Do you use words, do you spell out you, Y-O-U, or do you just learn, use the letter U? You know, like what kind of, like it was so fraught, and I was just listening to them talking about that, thinking, are you crazy? That is, that is yeah. I had a, 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 a high school um, son of a friend of mine read the book uh, when it was in process, you know, to comment on it. He said that resonated with him more than almost anything because the night before he, or the afternoon before he was reading it, he had been sitting on his bed trying to compose that text and he couldn't do it. And so in the end, he just decided not to. Yeah. What do you say afterwards? Yeah. It makes it, it seems so complicated and like there's like all these head games involved it's like even worse than online dating i'm like oh my god it's on a, you know there's no accountability you're not face to face with somebody so there's so much missing there so you know yeah. one thing I, I thought a lot about with parents and educators is i was in a, a sex education class at one point where they just started talking about like how do you ask a person on a date how might you do that how might yeah. you have a conversation with somebody and kids don't know how to do that these days. And so just that conversation, that's not a hard conversation to have with your child. You know, that doesn't involve saying the word clitoris. You know, right, yeah. That's that's a conversation. Like, what kind of relationship, what kind of sexual experience do you want? Do you want a disconnected, detached experience where you, like the partner is basically a masturbation toy for you? Or do you want to have an intimate experience with somebody? Do you want to connect? Do you want to know the person? Like, what does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Gosh, there's just so much going on in there. I can't wait to talk about it some more. So we're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we are going to dive in even deeper. So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Whether you're new to single life, stuck in dating hell, or coupled up and trying to spice things up, Done Being Single with host Treva and Robbie Sharf is your lifeline to love. From hookups to happily ever after, Done Being Single is dating intervention with practical tools and tips that will take your dating game to the next level. Tune in to Done Being Single, Saturdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. And be sure to follow Treva and Robbie on Instagram and Twitter at Done Being Single. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Holistic Sex Ed Radio. Want to go deeper into this conversation? Visit us on the web at HolisticSexEdRadio.com. Now back to Robin LaCrosse. We're back. So, Peggy... We already know that parents are really uncomfortable talking about sex, and most of us didn't get good information. So now that we're expected to talk to our kids, and clearly many parents are struggling with that, what are some of the messages that you have gathered from boys that would be like beneficial for them to hear? Um, well, obviously, that you know, I can't. It depends on the age of the boy. Um, okay. Well, let's let's talk about like pre, like say twelve and up. So preteen, teenager. With younger, with the youngest boys, the first kind of set of lessons is around um, naming their emotions, mm-hmm. understanding their emotions, um, being able to connect. Because one of the things with adult men uh, is that they all have, not all, most have been found to have um, a, a, a kind of condition where they actually can't name a lot of their feelings like they feel something but they don't know what that feeling is so helping boys to understand and stay connected to their feelings um, in an appropriate way is really important Um, you can teach lessons of consent to young boys by uh, you know telling them that you can't hug somebody unless they say it's okay to hug them or by saying when Aunt Nancy comes over and wants to give them a kiss and they don't want to kiss Aunt Nancy, well, they don't have to kiss Aunt Nancy. You know, those are lessons in agency. Um, I think all along the way we need to, from little to big, one of the things I think we've done a really great job with, and this is not even talking about sex. These are all, you know, scaffolding issues to help you get there. Um, but we don't, we, with girls, we talk so much about the media now you know, we are so aware as parents, and I think this goes even across the political spectrum, of the damaging messages about sexualization and body that girls get from media. And we talk about it with them all the time, and there's whole organizations devoted to that, and, you know, all these things. Boys grow up in that same culture, and we didn't say anything to them about the messages that they're getting from media, let alone pornography. And that's another thing um, that you know, I know you'd rather that many parents would rather poke themselves in the eye with a fork than talk to their children about pornography. Um, but you don't have the luxury of silence because the fact is, if we don't start talking to our children about these issues, the media is going to educate them for us, and we're not going to like the result. And and all of that said, and you know, all these things, you know, consent, um, having them uh, read Chanel Miller's 
statement, the, the uh, woman who was victimized by Brock Turner, that's an incredible statement of what that felt like to create empathy. Um, but not only dwelling on the don'ts and not only dwelling on the danger and the risk, but also talking to our boys about um, personal responsibility and joy in their sexual relationships. And that includes um, understanding female pleasure which is something that we really don't talk to boys about. And that is something that they are learning in an extremely distorted way from pornography now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I found too, in my conversations with parents that talking about pleasure is like, like the number one thing I think that makes parents squirm, like the whole idea. (laughs) Yeah. The whole idea of talking about like masturbation and pleasure and like, I'm going to teach a course on this because it, it's it's you know even I have one of my friends you know she was she's my friend she's been a client and you know I've helped her talking you know to her daughter about this and I told her you know it's like have you talked to your daughter about masturbation yet or pleasure and she's like oh my god she's like I can't I'm like yes you can she's like ah and it's like it's like one of those things that just makes parents squirm well that was a huge thing with the girl book particularly and and I ended up doing um in addition to book I did a TED talk. Um, related to that book that like went berserkly viral and I think that that's been a great tool for both girls and boys um, to jumpstart that conversation I hope it has been Um, but for boys in particular girls too but boys I mean if you've got a teenage boy he's watching porn yeah you know the issue I mean curiosity masturbation great sex you know curiosity about sex totally normal but what has changed is that they can now see anything they, you know, that you can imagine in a whole lot of things nobody doesn't want to imagine right at their fingertips. And that what is presented to them is a distortion of sex where it's something that men do to women. It's, you know, female pleasure is a performance for male gratification. Bodies are distorted. And, you know, even in more vanilla clips, a lot of what they do really wouldn't feel that good to anybody. Um, so... And, and kids are using that absent parent discussion as their sex educator, and they're taking that into the bedroom with them. Yeah. So we can't anymore not address that. And I know it's awkward. I know it can feel excruciating. And that's because our parents never talked. I mean, I don't know about yours. Mine, you know, our parents didn't tend to talk to us. And I don't know about you, um, but... I was not born able to get up on a stage and talk to a group of 500 people about oral sex. That was not a natural act, you know? You learn. And the more you try, and instead of thinking about it as something that's awkward and excruciating, think about it as a way that you're, like, showing up for your kid and teaching them how to have awkward conversations. So if we, if we can't talk to our kids and demonstrate how to have these challenging conversations, um, and I know just from my experience with talking to a lot of parents, like a lot of parents even can't talk to their partner about sex, like if sex is painful or, you know, maybe this position doesn't work quite right or just we'd like to change something just a little bit, like we can't even say something like that. And so how do we expect that we can have these conversations with our kids? And when we can't demonstrate this for our kids, then how in the world are they going to grow up and have a healthy relationship? So that's got, that cycle's got to stop. And I think one thing you can do is be forgiving towards yourself and recognize that um, 
you know, it's okay not to be able to be perfect. It's okay not to get it right. It's okay not to have been perfect yourself in your own life. You know, whether you are a, a, a father or a mother, you know, maybe your relationships haven't worked out. Maybe your sex life isn't great. That doesn't mean that you don't have some things to say to your child. And that doesn't mean that you can't offer them the tools and ideas that might help them build something that will be really positive for them. Yeah, Ron, you know, every parent has the benefit of experience. And one of the things that I discovered, you know, my mom talked to me about sex. I grew up in Vermont, it's a liberal state. I got sex ed twice in school, and I still came out of that experience, those experiences, clueless. And what I discovered, you know, at the age of 20, when I decided I didn't want to be on the pill anymore and realized I didn't know how to protect myself, um, you know, led to a quest for information. Eventually, I discovered you know, how to manage my fertility naturally. And I was like, wow, you know, like if every girl grew up knowing this stuff and it's the same thing, you know, like if we taught our kids, our boys, you know, like how to have healthy relationships, how to express their emotions. If we did all these things, you know, if we, you know, even if our relationships didn't go that well, if we said to our children, you know, it's like, you know, when you're choosing a partner, like when you're making your life's decisions, like who you choose as your life partner, who you choose to have your children with is like the most important choice of your adult life. Because, you know, especially if you're having children, it's like you're attaching yourself to this person for the rest of your life. And so how do you choose somebody who's worthy of that? You know, like how do you choose a great partner, you know, who's going to treat you right and all that sort of thing. It's really impossible for me to believe that we would be so cavalier and say so little about anything else that was that important in a, in a child's life sex is like it's 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 so many things you know and it has the power to you know change the course of people's lives and that's one of the things that really just i'm so passionate about you know helping parents talk to their kids because this is their life you know and it goes so far beyond just sex you know it's like i have a hard time myself just limiting to that scope because there's there's just like so much to talk about which is why i love this radio show because i get to talk about the holistic piece of it so i think that's super important important with boys in particular is to get that holistic piece because that's what they don't have yeah, as we're really missing that, and porn will never provide that for them. <laughs> no. So we're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about boys of color and then different sexual orientations too, like queer boys. So when we come back, we'll talk about that. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. There are lots of unanswered questions about life's problems, and this is especially true about spiritual life. Why can't we see God? Why is there evil in this world? Why does God let bad things happen to us and to others? Can we get divine help? Join Carl Mollison and co-host Brian Kelly for Get Wisdom. They have new answers from the Almighty you need to hear. And listening could definitely change your life. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Empowerment.com 
You are listening to Holistic Sex Ed Radio. Want to go deeper into this conversation? Visit us on the web at HolisticSexEdRadio.com. Now back to Robin LaCrosse. So, Peggy, can you, what can you tell us about, like, boys of color and queer kids? And I don't know, this is probably two separate subjects. Yeah. Yes. So, um, talking to boys of color was really interesting. They had all the, you know, the issues that we've talked about that other boys face. But then in addition to that, they're dealing with um, uh, racism and stereotyping around mm-hmm. who they are. And I was particularly interested in looking at African-American boys and Asian-American boys because they sort of are two ends of a spectrum in terms of how they're seen. And the guys that I was looking at were mostly in white environments. Um, so the African-American boys were seen as like the coolest guy in the room, but also maybe the dumbest guy in the room and hypersexual and maybe predatory. And Asian guys were seen as super smart, but not masculine and as asexual. And there was a huge psychological toll um, on both groups of guys with contending with those stereotypes. So like an African-American boy said to me, um, he had a lot of anxiety about going to parties in college because he said, you know, I don't want to be around a bunch of drunk white kids because anything could go wrong. And if I'm the only black guy in the room, you know, I'm the only black guy in the room. Right. And that was really concerning. So that was, you know, that was really affecting his whole image of these things. Whereas, and then, you know, talking to Asian guys who would talk about things like um, racism on swipe apps, which is a huge, a, a huge deal. Um, and like one guy said, um, I matched with this girl and she writes to, she, you know, says, um, uh, we could be friends, but no offense. I don't date Asian guys. And he's like, how is that no offense? Like, why is that no offense? Yeah, right. And so they were constantly contending with, you know, it was like they were flip sides of the same coin. And then white masculinity was this like neutral thing that they were both sort of being compared against. And, you know, white boys were like the ones flipping the coin. Hmm. Yeah, that doesn't sound very good. So, and then in that kind of situation too, um, yeah, I'm just trying to, like, picture how that all fits into, like, the, the hookup culture and well, it does kids and all that. Less likely to be in the hookup culture, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, uh, there's, there's some loneliness, um, and there's a lot of um, anxiety and concern uh, about whether, um, you know, something, any given thing is about them as a person or is about them as, as a race. And then African-American boys in particular also were um, justifiably uh, especially concerned that they would be um, accused of assault. And, you know, there's a history in this country of the accusations, you know, false accusations of rape being used as a social, a tool of social control of black men. Right. But then rape in general being used as a tool of social control of all women. So that can put black guys on campus in conflict with white feminists who are trying to change the culture. And it also um, then really puts black women in a very difficult spot of wanting to protect black men from further social trauma or further, I'm sorry, further um, uh, trauma, but also um, then potentially at their own expense. Mm -hmm. So I think that when we're looking at cases like, you know, these big cases where you see like R. Kelly or um, Bill Cosby, where uh, there's at first a resistance in the community, you know, Chance the Rapper said after the R. Kelly thing finally was um, acknowledged that he felt like he was part of the problem because he was not willing to 
um, step up and talk about a black man victimizing black women. Mm. You know, I, especially African American parents, do a very good job. And I have not, you know, I don't certainly don't have anything to say to parents of color about um, raising a child in a racist environment. They know that, uh, you know, perfectly well themselves. Right. I, I do think that the rest of us and everybody. Um, needs to, as part of all this other education, make our kids aware. Our kids are, these days are very aware of um, racial stereotypes and racism and, and want to be very conscious about it. But that does tend to go out the window um, in sexual situations. And so to recognize um, the role of gender and, and sex and expectations and stereotyping in our ideas about sex and our ideas about people and, and the choices that we make um, is a really important thing for kids to understand to be more inclusive mm-hmm. and fair. Yeah, and I think it's probably really challenging for parents to talk about that because it's really something that we ourselves probably haven't really thought much about or had much cause to be you know, talking about it, exposed to it, um, you know, some of these larger problems. And so... But when you're talking about race and racism with your kid anyway, it's another area. And it's also true, you know, in pornography, porn is really racialized. And, um, and you know, I talk about that with boys too. Like, how do you deal with the kind of racism in porn? And they kind of go, what? And it's like... <laughs> it's like they just left that at the door when they walked, you know, when they, when they started doing that. I was like, well, what if you didn't leave that at the door? What would you be and thinking and hearing and learning right yeah and i I wonder too like are they just like so caught up in the visuals that they don't like pick up on these other subliminal messages because we get these messages in our media all over you know so can we talk a little bit about that like the messages that boys are getting from the media yeah because we've talked a little bit about porn but you know mainstream media obviously you know is is as powerful or more powerful and a lot of those you know what, what we know about media is that even when you think it doesn't it affects the way that you think about things mm-hmm. so when boys are having these messages beamed at them all the time about male sexual entitlement and female sexual availability that matters even when they say they can tell that it doesn't so you know the I, uh, one example i use in the book is um a family guy show where the main character goes next door and um, accidentally releases a bunch of bikini clad Asian women from his next door neighbor's garage who are apparently being held hostage, um, which, yeah, right. It, that's funny. Um, it's hilarious. Um, uh-huh, and, yeah. But so maybe that doesn't like, you know, tell boys, Oh, well you should keep Asian women as sex slaves, but it might make them, Unconsciously and subtly more willing to see Asian women as objects than they would white women in a sexual encounter or romantic situation. Mm. It's called priming. Yeah. Right. Priming. Mm-hmm. And then you, you mentioned the word hilarious. And let's talk a little bit about hilarious. You talked yeah, about this a bit in your book. Yeah. I, I'm so obsessed with hilarious and funny because boys use that as like a deflective shield anytime something is especially something sexual is in you know a, a gross meme that somebody sends some of a woman being gagged by a penis and you know mascara running down her face if you say well that's hilarious then nobody's going to target you nobody's going to call you a pussy nobody's going to call you a fag nobody's you know like it's a safe space where they can always know that you know nobody's going to be tar- targeting them um but it's also a way that boys disconnect from feeling again and from knowing what they know and that they have to, def- you know, diminish empathy 
for another human being. So what I started to notice was how often in the uh, high-profile sexual assault cases, like the one in Steubenville, Ohio, that boys will say, well, we thought we were just being funny. We thought it was hilarious. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, that's the kind of far end of that spectrum where you disconnect from your own feeling, you don't empathize with the other person, and so you can commit this heinous act. Um, and it's particularly troubling when it happens with uh, bystanders. So it, it discourages bystander intervention because you can always go, hey, it's hilarious. If it's hilarious, then there's no problem. Right. So it was a really, um, cru- and you can see that when I just said with family, it's hilarious, right? If it's hilarious, you don't have to reckon with what it really means. Right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Very interesting. It's like... Uh, entertainment at the expense of others is kind of this phrase that I had come up with uh, a while back, which kind of makes me think of that. It's like you're, you're, you and your buddies or whatever are, are poking fun at something or person or whatever. And it's hurtful to that person. It's not, you know, not a fun thing. And yeah, it's hilarious to them, you know, kind of thing. And I talk about it. Like, um, one of the examples that I use in poison sex is, um, the dead baby joke, right? So dead baby jokes, super funny. But if I told you like, you know, about that baby being born, about how happy the parents were when the baby was born, about how horrible the baby's death was, about what the funeral was like, and then I cracked a dead baby joke? Not so funny. Because now you identify with and feel empathy for the subject of that joke. So what does it mean if you're saying that a sexual assault on somebody is hilarious? Right. Yeah. Not funny at all. So, and they're just missing it, yeah. There's just a, like, takes away the gravity of the situation. Right. So really talking, it's another you know, area to talk to boys. And again, you know, we want to encourage the positive, the responsible, the joyful, but we do have to talk about these issues of the culture that they grow up in and the impact of these small comments, whether it's the kind of locker room bang hammer nail talk or whether it's things that are hilarious or whether it's what they see. And one guy said to me, you know, I think music um, plays a really big role in how guys treat girls. And when you're driving around in a friend's car and, you know, for hours and you're hearing song after song where they're saying, fuck that bitch and leave her. Um, and you hear that four or five, six, ten times in an afternoon every day, you know, it's going to affect your mindset. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's like a mantra. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you have to be able to, you know, we have to interrupt these messages and, talk to boys about them not you know they're going to get them just like girls are going to be getting all these messages about body and beauty all the time but what we've done with girls and it's not perfect but it's better is to get in there and get them to be able to critique that culture which helps them be less subject to it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it makes a difference as you're saying mm-hmm. yep it makes a difference, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, yeah, it makes a difference. So I, I think it's another area where parents can really, um, have an impact. You know, I know that when I, I have a daughter, um, and when she was little, I always used to say, when we would look at like, you know, Disney princesses and stuff, like, hey, look, their eyes are bigger than their waist or than their wrist. Are your eyes bigger than your wrist? Hold your wrist up to your eyes, honey, and look. You know, their waist, their heads are bigger than their waist. Is your head bigger than your waist? I don't think so. Like, just constantly, I mean, I just wanted, if she was going to be brainwashed, I wanted to brainwash her first, you know, yeah. so constantly reinforcing. And I, w- I don't think I would have said that to a boy. I don't think I would have said to a boy, hey, look at that female character over there. Her eyes are bigger than her wrist. That's weird. 
and you know by the way look at the male character too but i think we have to do that kind of um conversational you know kind of back pattern back uh background talk with our boys as well as our girls yeah, I think that's really good because, you know, a lot of times you don't think about things unless somebody maybe says something or you actually spend a lot of time actively engaged in thought process around something like this. You know, what am I seeing on porn? You know, most people aren't, aren't like, having that critical analysis. Even when, again, even when they say, I know it's not real, which they do all the time, you know, well, how would they know that's not real? What is it that they think is real, exactly? And they are right messages into the bedroom and yeah well and it, we already know too that you know these early formative experiences you know with visualizing the, the you know the pornography and stuff impacts their arousal patterns um their ability to i mean who ever heard of a teenager having a trouble getting an erection <laughs> like you know tell me about that i mean that was one boy um we had this a number of boys talk to me about that that was porn was actually one of the things they wanted to talk about most to be honest um but one guy was telling me how uh he was a pretty heavy porn user and then he went to have intercourse the first time in a hookup mm-hmm. uh, and he couldn't get it up and then the next day with the same girl, you know, they got together and tried again, couldn't get it up. Third time, she looked at him and said, have you ever done this before? And he said, well, actually, you know, no. And he, she said, well, what did you want your first time to be like? Right. And they ended up having a conversation, he said, for like, you know, an hour or two. And he said, and suddenly, magically, it worked. Right. Duh. And he said, you know, I realized in that moment that, um, if I can't be psychologically and emotionally vulnerable with somebody, I can't be physically vulnerable with them because the body is a vulnerable thing. Yeah. You know, you can't learn that from a screen. No, you can't. Mm-mm. So let's talk a little bit about queer boys. Yeah. So one thing that was fascinating about queer boys and just in terms of relating them to other kids was that they were really kind of a model in negotiating consent and you know what was going to happen in a sexual encounter mm-hmm. uh, partly because they you know they had to they wasn't they, the script you know they weren't on the heterosexual script it wasn't obvious um so who was going to do what to whom or with whom or whatever um you have to talk about and as one of the guys said to me you know I don't know why straight guys are so resistant to that because if you're talking about it, it means you're going to be having sex and that's like really great. That's yeah, totally. Uh-huh. You know? um, and Dan Savage, who is a um, syndicated columnist who writes about sex, said that what gay, he calls it the four magic words that gay guys use, which is what are you into? And it's this wonderful open-ended question because it makes, as he says, it makes gay a conversation you know, rather than an endpoint. Um, and rather than saying like, do you want to do oral or do you want to go down on me? You know, that's not really an open-ended question. What are you into? That's an open-ended question. Right. And it's, you know, something that's more than a yes or a no to something that one partner has already prescribed. And it's interesting because lately I've heard from parents of girls that they feel like the consent conversation, one of the things that concerns them is that it's framed as boys asking and girls responding. Mm. And that that doesn't give a girl in a way full agency to say what she wants to do. But if we said to our kids, you know, what are you into? Um, that, that gives that agency back. It's tricky, I think, with, uh, I, you know, Dan is also gay, and I said it's a little tricky in the heterosexual relationship because girls don't learn what they're into. So right. it's hard to 
we also don't know how to answer that question. Right. But then that's another conversation we need to be having. Yeah, well, and that's the pleasure conversation. Like, right. how do you figure out what feels good? You know, it's like hooking up on, you know, three nights a week or whatever isn't going to help you figure that out because, you know, it's like, you actually need to spend some time with your partner to discover what they like. And, you know, sometimes you need, you need to yeah. At a certain point, you know, kids, usually, kids get disillusioned by hookup culture. But it's sort of, you know, I wish that they didn't have to go through so much harm and trauma and, un, you know, and dissatisfaction to get there. Yeah, and then not to mention all the, you know, unintended pregnancies, the risk of STDs, and all these other factors that go into, on top of all of the emotional and psychological, mental, you know, physical, spiritual yeah. stuff that go along with sex in general, too. So, yeah, it's lots of important conversations to parents, for parents to be having with their kids, and especially with their boys. Yeah. Yeah. So, Peggy, I want to thank you so much. And I know that you have some great resources for parents and individuals who are, you know, wanting to learn more. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about sure. the resources you have? Obviously, Boys and Sex and Girls and Sex. Those would be the top of the list, the two books. Yes. Amazing books. I will totally plug them both. I read them both, and I they're just amazing. I just highlighted. There's, like, so much highlighters. <laughs> little flags. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good good material um, on my website which is peggybernstein.com um, there is a resources page uh, called positive sexuality that has just oodles and oodles of resources for parents and for young people themselves on having these conversations and on positive responsible sexuality um, mutual gratification all of these things that we've been talking about that will help make those conversations a little bit easier um, and you can also get on my mailing list at that website as well Yes, awesome. And I'll post those all in the show notes for everybody. And yeah, I want to thank you so much, Peggy, for the work that you're doing, because it's really important. And I found your book so helpful. And I'm sure millions of other people have as well. And I think that, you know, I think this boys and sex books is going to be life changing for so many people. So thank you so much for taking the time and the energy to do that and talk to all those young men. And thanks to all the young men who spent time with you because, you know, teenagers have that reputation for, you know, not talking. And it turns out maybe they would like to talk. Yep. Before we part company here, do you have any final thoughts for parents about this? You know, just talk to your boys. You have just got to figure it out, work through whatever, you know, do it in the car. <laughs> I always say, here's, yeah, a here's a final tip, do it in the car because you're, trapped you've got them trapped and you're not eye contact yeah it's excellent yeah great thanks for listening so today everybody thank you so much peggy it's been a real pleasure you've been listening to holistic sex ed radio thank you for spending some of your precious time with us today while these conversations may be difficult at times the rewards are well worth it we have the power to change the world by what we teach our kids. Join host Robin LaCrosse next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thought-provoking conversation. Thank you and have a beautiful day.